Hi, writers. This is Jim Thayer. Sometimes we talk about big techniques such as plot and characters, and other times we hone in on the things that can make us skilled sentence-by-sentence writers. Most novelists try to do both, strong plot and strong writing. But there's a misconception about best-selling authors. Sure, they can come up with these mass-market-pleasing plots, but they can't write very well, not as well as our small-selling literary writers. This misconception is entirely wrong. Best-selling writers of commercial fiction often are splendid writers. Sure, Stephen King and John Grisham are gripping storytellers, but also their sentence-by-sentence writing is as accomplished as it gets. They are highly skilled craftsmen of the language, not just the big story. And there are many, many other best-selling commercial novelists who know how to write wonderful sentences. Let me suggest that we as writers should try for both. Big, engaging stories and skilled sentence-by-sentence composing. We'll talk in this episode about a couple more uh, techniques regarding phrase and sentence crafting. Here's a technique I I don't think I knew before I read it in Strunk and White. Uh, Their Elements of Style was written 80 years ago, and they said, Make definite assertions. Avoid tame colorless, hesitating, non-committal language. Use the word not as a means of denial or in antithesis, never as a means of evasion. Strunk and White suggested trying to put our sentences in positive rather than negative form. Not, the word not, can rob an idea of energy. Same with don't, can't, aren't, won't and isn't, they're stop signs in the reader's mind. While do, can, are, will, is, move a sentence forward. Here's an example. Instead of, she didn't remember the medicine, try, she forgot the medicine. Instead of, the candy wasn't sweet enough, try, the candy was sour. It's mostly the same thing, but the uh, stop sign of not has been avoided. The milk was not fresh. Instead, try the milk was sour. He didn't like to work. Instead, instead of using did not, try he was lazy. The telescope's glass wasn't clear. Instead, The telescope glass was fogged. Listen to the stop sign was not in. The rain wasn't heavy. Instead, try it was misting. The paint hadn't dried. There's a stop sign had not in that sentence. The paint was still tacky. The box didn't contain anything. Did not is the stop sign. The box was empty. She couldn't run as fast as the other girls. Instead, try, she was slower than the other girls. The sun wasn't out. Try, clouds hid the sun. 
instead of the stop sign does not in he does not play fair, try the phrase, the full sentence, he cheats. The word not can't be avoided at all times, of course, and we shouldn't try, but we should question its use in our sentences. Not The word not, the negative, tends to slow momentum in a sentence and phrase. Can we use a more energetic sentence? He cheats is more energetic than he doesn't play fair. Let's talk now about cliches. White as snow, cold as ice. Cliches kill writing. They are so easy. Why do any thinking? But they are lame A cliché, Wendy Kaminer writes, quote, relieves us of the burden of discovering and articulating our own insights or ideas. Listen to these clichés and weep along with me. This is an article in the New York Post. Count the clichés. Transit union leaders and the MTA reached a deal early today on a new social co- on a new contract to keep the subways and buses running after a knuckle-biting round of down-to-the-wire talks. That's two clichés, knuckle-biting and down-to-the-wire in the same sentence. That's not the record for clichés. Here's an article in a newspaper about the Canuck hockey team in Vancouver. When it's the hottest ticket in town and Lady Luck smiles on you, well, it doesn't get much better than that. (laughs) And here's an op-ed piece in the New York Times. The fat cats will get their tax cuts, but in the new American plutocracy, there won't even be crumbs left over for the working folks at the bottom of the pyramid to scramble after. And here's a Canadian member of Parliament. The cards are stacked, and I can't get into the game. In that racket, you've got to have a level playing field, and you've got to feel ideas and vision are as important as organization and deep pockets. That's five cliches in one sentence. The the Guinness Book of World Records should be notified about that. Uh, It's hard to avoid cliches. They spring so readily into our mind, and I think a lot of us, including me, think in cliches. But we need to uh, sanitize our thinking. Cliches just don't uh, look good on the page, and they indicate a lack of attention. We as writers should avoid cliches like the plague. If you are finding these podcasts about writing fiction useful and would like to support the show, please hit the support the show button below and it will take you to Patreon and it'd be much appreciated. Let's talk about mangled metaphors. Another way to put it is put that in your pipe and <laughs> put that in your pipe and chew on it. If a cliche cliche is the mark of lazy thinking, then a mangled metaphor is the mark of fractured thinking. It's also called a mixed metaphor. 
As we know, a metaphor is where a word or phrase is applied to something to which it is not literally applicable, to suggest a resemblance, as, as in a mighty fortress is our God. Mixed metaphors, or mangled metaphors, are the use in the same expression of two or more metaphors that are illogical when combined, as in, the, the president will put the ship of state on its feet. Here are are a few that I've copied down over the years. The win in tonight's game will be the spark that gets us rolling. That's so awful, it's wonderful. I've mercifully forgotten the coach's name. Here is a, a British politician. I don't like it. When you open that Pandora's box, you will find it full of Trojan horses. (laughs) Here's a United States congresswoman, congressman. To put the essence in a nutshell, how about uh, even great writers, uh, of which T.E. Lawrence was one, Lawrence of Arabia, in his... uh, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, the veil of humor seemed to fade away. Here's another one. The bandwagon is steamrolling down the road, a newscaster said on a primary election victory. I was laughing so hard that I didn't get the newscaster's name. Meanwhile, the campaign rhetoric between the two has ratcheted up to a fever pace. And here's a here's a New York City mayor. But the rebirth of Lower Manhattan will not be complete as long as Ground Zero remains an open wound. Rebirth and open wound. Here's uh, two well-worn clichés, fold like a tent and shiny like a cheap suit. They're mangled together in a Pittsburgh Post-Gazette op-ed piece. Bin Laden believed the strikes on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon would cause us to fold like a cheap suit. <laughs> I like to think these mistakes come from typing too fast under the pressure of a deadline. Uh, we should probably type slower. Uh, a mangled metaphor will cause your readers to laugh out loud, bringing them entirely out of your story. And uh, the problem with uh, that is that, of course, is that it's at the writer's expense, that laughter. Some listeners to this podcast are mature. They're more senior than others. Their life stories have some years packed into them. Good for them. If you're thinking of writing a novel, are having lived a long life, uh, is that a problem? Not in the slightest. Listen to this. Verdi was 80 years old when he composed Falstaff, and he was 85 when he wrote his Ava Maria. Titian painted the memorable Battle of Lepanto when he was 98 years old. Gladstone became Prime Minister of Great Britain at age 83. At age 74, Immanuel Kant wrote his finest philosophical work. 
Alfred Lord Tennyson penned his unforgettable Crossing the Bar at age 83. In his 90s, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes was still writing brilliant judicial decisions. Clara Barton was 61 when she founded the American Red Cross, and she remained its president until she was 83. Then she established the National First Aid Association when she was 84 and was its active leader until she was 91. It doesn't matter how many years we've lived. If you're thinking of writing a novel, give it a shot. Age probably is a benefit in the writing of it. We are talking about phrases and phrase-making. Let's talk about the dreadful analogy. This list has been on the Internet for some years. Uh, A high school English teacher had collected examples from his students of awful and hilarious analogies. I've looked online. I can't find the name of the high school or of the teacher. And if I did, if I found them, I'd give proper credit. But these are, these collection of high school analogies are, are, are too good to leave out, even if uncredited. These are the worst analogies ever written in a high school essay. Her hair glistened in the rain like nose hair after a sneeze. He spoke with the wisdom that can only come from experience, like a guy who went blind because he looked at a solar eclipse without one of those boxes with a pinhole in it and now goes around the country speaking at high schools about the dangers of looking at a solar eclipse without one of those boxes with a pinhole in it. The little boat gently drifted across the pond, exactly the way a bowling ball wouldn't. From the attic came an unearthly howl. The whole scene had an eerie, surreal quality, like when you're on vacation in another city and Jeopardy comes on at 7 instead of 7.30. Her eyes were like two brown (laughs) circles with big black dots in the center. He was as tall as a six-foot-three-inch tree. Long separated by cruel fate, the star-crossed lovers raced across the grassy field toward each other like two freight trains, one having left Cleveland at 6.36 p.m., traveling at 55 miles an hour, the other from Topeka at 4.19 p.m. at the speed of 35 miles an hour. John and Mary had never met. They were like two hummingbirds who had also never met. <laughs> well, high school's fun, and these are fun. I hope they're, I hope they're accurate. Let's have, but let's have fun with some modifiers. You've heard me say that a publisher will choose a novel with a strong plot that is poorly written over a novel with a weak plot that is strongly written every time. But why shouldn't we have both in the novels we write? Strong plot, strong writing. When we write a novel, we never know its ultimate fate. If you write a novel with a strong plot that is weakly written, you might have a bestseller 
or a couple of bestsellers, and then in 20 years, no one will have remembered you. But if we write a strong plot with strong writing, there's a chance you'll have a bestseller now and be remembered in 20 years or 100 or, or 300 years. Charles Dickens did not know he was writing for the ages, and neither did Jane Austen. Neither did Raymond Chandler or Philip K. Dick or H.P. Lovecraft or J.R.R. R. Tolkien. They were trying to get published and make some money. But they're studied today. And their novels are loved today because the novels have a strong plot and strong writing. Why should we settle for being hack writers? Uh, A hack writer is someone who doesn't use words well. A writer of a strong plot who isn't good with the language is a hack writer. We should shoot for better. We want to be good users of the language, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph. But not just for posterity, not just for a hundred years from now. Some readers pay attention to the plot and get great pleasure from a well-told story in a novel, and I don't care or know about, and they don't care or, or know about good writing, and that's just great. They're reading and getting pleasure from it. But there's a large percentage of readers who, who gain great pleasure from a strong story that is told in vivid correct, and powerful language. Why shouldn't we entertain these readers too? Why not have both a strong story and strong language? That's, that's our goal with these podcasts. We're going to talk now about strong language, but we'll return in later episodes to big picture techniques such as strong plotting. Let's talk about modifiers. A modifier is a word or a phrase that limits or qualifies the sense of another word or phrase. Usually they are adverbs or adjectives. The big dog haltingly walked to the house. Big is an adjective and haltingly is an adverb. There's just the right amount of using modifiers. We learned in high school that modifiers describe things or actions and are called adjectives and adverbs. They can enliven a sentence, compare she walked into the house with she walked jubilantly into the house, where jubilantly has poured energy and joy into the sentence. It's in this case, telling rather than showing, but once in a while, telling is okay. A single word can produce markedly different results. She walked warily into the house. She walked disgustedly into the house. She walked weakly into the house. These uh, modifiers change the sentence entirely. But sometimes using modifiers becomes too much. They're used too often. And sentence, uh, sentences begin to look like they're walking on a crutch with too many modifiers. Here's one of the main ways we can make our writing more vivid. And that's by using modifiers sparingly. Uh, 
Stephen King says, adverbs are not your friend. His advice could be applied to adjectives too. The runaway use of modifiers is the mark of an earnest but unskilled writer. Instead of the wrestler wiped sweat from his face, the sentence becomes the muscled sinewy wrestler quickly wiped glistening sweat from his meaty and haggard face. That's the runaway use of modifiers. Here's another example where the writer, in this case me, has padded the sentence and added and added modifiers until the sentence sinks. Here it is. A sporadic summer breeze playfully ruffled Phaedra Green's shoulder-length flaxen hair, lightly perfuming her damp neck with the sweet scent of southern magnolia. In this sentence, here are the adjectives or adverbs. Sporadic, summer, playfully, shoulder-length, flaxen, lightly, damp, sweet, southern. Nine modifiers in a sentence are far too many. This is stronger and, and clearer. A breeze ruffled Phaedra Green's flaxen hair, perfuming her damp neck with magnolia. Here's another sentence larded up with modifiers. These are fun to write. The faint love song of a lonesome mockingbird lingering on the tepid wind underscored the soft clinking of dinnerware, the muffled conversations of dinnered guests nearby, and happy children frolicking in the swimming pool. This sentence, too, contains nine modifiers. Faint, love, lonesome, tepid, soft, muffled, dinner, happy, and swimming. Uh, there's a funny thing about adjectives and adverbs, these modifiers. They often weaken rather than strengthen a sentence. Sometimes they're necessary, of course, but stacking them like these sentences ha have done... Uh, I've done in these sentences, weakens the sentence. Here's another one, and I'm going to exaggerate to make the point where I pile on the modifiers. Lost in his clothes, the disagreeably spavin, <laughs> graveyard-thin, loose-jointed waiter looked at us with cloudy, milky, puzzled eyes, then smiled an oblique, long-suffering grin, his teeth showing sourly. I'm exaggerating to make a point, but it's easy to stack modifiers. Generally, the more adjectives and, adject and adverbs a sentence has, the weaker it becomes. The key and the technique here is to let a strong verb and the subject do much of the sentence's work. Pick a verb and a subject in our sentence that doesn't need to be modified, at least doesn't need to be much modified. An example, instead of run fast, try sprinted. Instead of large house, try mansion. We'll talk more about the use and misuse of modifiers in a sentence in our next episode. It's, it's an important topic. 
But I want to leave this episode with an important philosophical question or two. First, can prison be good for us writers? Maybe. The German writer of novels of the American West, Karl May, was wrongly accused of theft in 1862 and served six weeks in jail. Barred as a convict from most jobs, he then began a life of crime. Over the next 12 years, he spent a total of eight years in prison. He began writing in prison, and when he died in 1912, more than 1.6 million copies of his novels had been sold. Today, more than 180 million copies of his novels have been sold, 100 million in German and the rest in 39 other languages. Here's another question. Can an injury be good for us writers? Maybe. As a Royal Air Force pilot during World War II, Roald Dahl, the author of James and the Giant Peach and Matilda, found himself in several dogfights and was seriously injured when he crash-landed his aircraft in the Libyan desert. He suffered spinal injuries, a smashed hip, and a fractured skull. He would later suggest, half-jokingly, that his urge to write had in fact been activated by his wartime smash-up and its accompanying blow to the head. Because until then, he displayed no literary or intellectual ambitions. This is from a Washington Examiner article by Brian Murray, titled Valley of the Dolls, D-A-H-L-S. That's it for this episode. Uh, next time we'll turn again to modifiers. It's, it's not as fun as a trip to the county fair, that subject, but it's really important. So we'll return to it with what I think are some good techniques next time. And until then, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys. <laughs>